Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Today in the podcast, I'm going to do a similar format to something that I did about three or four weeks ago and what turned out to be one of, if not the most popular podcast in my 200 plus catalog of episodes. And I talked a few weeks ago about scratching the Euro nymphing surface. And so in a very cursory way, very high overhead view, I talked about the things that you will need and the things that you'll need to think about if you're going to start fishing uh, Euro-nymphing techniques with Euro-nymphing gear. Now, as I mentioned in that podcast, I do that. It's one of my favorite ways to catch fish in the wintertime. It's one of my favorite ways to catch fish in heavily pressured waters. It's one of my favorite ways to catch fish in very fast water, but I'm certainly not an expert. Now, when it comes to this category, when it comes to what you need to be a successful dry fly angler, uh, both in gear and in some techniques, uh, I'm a little bit more experienced. I fished quite a few dry fly techniques and patterns and different gear setups. But that being said, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. And there's so much information out there. So as per usual, you hear something that I say, Use that as an incentive to give you the initiative to go out and do your own research. Go to the fly shop, play around with gear, pick up a book by one of the actual experts and see what they have to say about it and uh, mess around with it and give it uh, give it a little bit of time yourself. I think the one of the great things about dry fly gear, things that are kind of dry fly specific, is that they are often quite versatile with only a few exceptions. Uh, the gear that you're going to use to fish dry flies is stuff that you're going to be able to use to fish in quite a few different situations and scenarios. That being said, there are some things that are particularly suited for fishing dry flies. And we'll start with what rod to use. Now, what rod to use is almost like saying what's the best fly rod. The best dry fly rod is going to be something that is unique to you, your casting stroke, and where you fish. Predominantly, those are going to be the two things that I would uh, talk to somebody about if they said, "What, what kind of dry fly rod should I get? But regardless of what uh, your casting stroke is like and where you're fishing, the thing that I'm going to be looking for is a medium fast fly rod with a delicate tip. And there's a few reasons for that. 
I want a rod that is able to punch a cast into the wind. Now, I'm not a huge fan of super fast fly rods for fishing dry flies, particularly for the reason that I don't think that they have, at least most of them don't, certainly there are exceptions, and you'll probably pay for it. They don't have the kind of tip that is going to give you the shock absorption that you need if you are fishing fine tippets and small flies where you have a very, very tiny knot using a very, very lightweight tippet. So I'm not a huge fan of the ultra fast rods when fishing for dry flies. They are good when fishing streamers and you can have a thicker leader and tippet material that's on there. And they are better for an all around uh, fishing situation where you're going to maybe have a thicker diameter tippet that's tied to your fly. But if you are going to be, you know you're going to be fishing dry flies, then I prefer to have a medium fast action um, with a little bit more of a delicate tip. So again, the medium fast action is going to give you that power to punch that uh, fly into, into the wind at distance. But that delicate tip that generally speaking is what is going to accompany a medium fast action, and it can trend up in the faster side of things, is going to allow some shock absorption when you are uh, um, um, fighting fish on a lighter tippet. Um, this is this is so important, and I think that this is one of the, the most necessary things to, to, to contemplate. Now, of course, you can say, well, you know, I like the nice, slow, easy casting stroke of a mid-flex rod or maybe even something slower like bamboo or fiberglass. And what I want to say right off the bat is that that is a fantastic idea and that is an excellent way to fish dry flies. In fact, uh, my my bamboo rod I that, that I fish most often, I fish dry flies on it probably 95% of the time. It has to be a very... Uh, unique circumstance where I take a dry fly off of my bamboo and I put a streamer or a uh, or a nymph on there. So I can understand that completely. But if I am going to be going on a larger river, even a medium-sized river, and fishing a hatch, and I know that I'm going to have dry fly action all day long, that's kind of what I'm talking about here. So there's nothing wrong with fiberglass. And certainly today, there are uh, fiberglass rods that do have a more progressive uh, and faster action. And that is actually a really good idea. Um, but I would say still today, with all the fiberglass options that are out there and some of the more um, advanced bamboo techniques uh, for, ba for bamboo rod building, grass rod building, that I would still say that a medium fast to fast action graphite rod with a delicate tip is what you should be looking for. Now, the other thing that I would say that that is the second thing is get as long of a fly rod as you can use on your water. So if you are fishing wide open river, you're fishing a big tailwater, or you are fishing a uh, uh, just like a wide open western river, then get a nine foot or nine and a half foot rod. Uh, it's going to be helpful to give you that uh, not only uh, a, a nice powerful casting stroke, but it's also going to give you the ability to mend that line, which we'll talk about here in a second. And I would say that a long rod in in its ability to mend line is as important as a rod that is short enough to accommodate any sort of stream side obstructions or overhanging uh, branches or limbs or anything like that. It is a fine balance between those two things. Can you, kind of like before with uh, grass and, and uh, glass, can you fish a very, very short rod uh, for dry flies? Of course, uh, five and a half foot, actually a five foot three inch fiberglass rod that is a lot of fun to fish 
little bushy dry flies for brook trout. It is a great rod. It's an antique. It's from the antique. This might make you feel old, but it's from the mid 60s and it is a lot of fun. I have a, I think that, that one's a five weight. And then I have a uh, six and a half foot zero weight fiberglass rod that's more contemporary. Same thing. I love fishing it for with dry flies, but I do get into limitations as far as distance goes and certainly when it comes to mending. But those rods are going to be rods that I'm fishing mostly almost exclusively on small mountain streams where I'm fishing from pool tail out up to pool head. And I'm not making long casts over multiple complicated currents where I need, first of all, the length of a rod to get the distance to, to make a long cast. And secondly, the length, uh, length of a rod to make the kind of mends that are necessary to have a good long drift. Because that's ultimately what we're talking about when we, when we're talking about a long cast is we're going to have a long drift that follows it. So we want to have a rod where we're able to to do that. So do I have a particular rod to suggest to you? No, because again, this is catered to your situation and your casting stroke. Go out and cast a bunch of rods, but you don't want that super thick butted, very stiff tip uh, rod. That's not going to work. And I also don't think that noodley rod is going to be the best the best rod for you if you're going to be using it exclusively for fishing dry flies. Um, I just don't think that they're they're suited for certain purposes and certain casting strokes, but generally speaking, they're not going to be the best rods for you. So that is the most important piece of gear, in my opinion. Second thing, and this is always shortly after um, uh, fly rods, uh, in in almost every search situation I can think of for for warm warm water, cool water, um, and not salt water, but freshwater fly fishing, and that is line. You want good line, as I've said a million times. Uh, great line makes a good rod better. Great line makes the best rods even better. Um, and you only have to upgrade $25 or $50 to get that top quality fly line. So are there unique dry fly tapers that are out there? Are there specially formulated lines? Yes. And I think those are great. But I also think that for the majority of your dry fly fishing, a traditional trout fly line is going to be just fine. It is going to have a nice long uh, running line, and it is going to have a gradual build up to a moderately long belly, and then a nice gentle taper into the tip terminal end of that that uh, fly line. So I think that is a fantastic uh, choice. It's just a normal trout line. Uh, you can buy the best version of that and you're going to be under $100 with, you know, nine out of 10 manufacturers. So that's great. Now, if you are fishing on a very, very glassy uh, spring creek, some of the spring creek delicate finesse style lines are going to be really, really good. I think that those are, they're actually worth worthwhile if you know you're going to be fishing on, um, streams where you're going to want a, not just a delicate presentation of your fly, but of your entire fly line. Uh, you know, you, you shadow a fish, you line a fish, you are going to be in trouble more often than not, but to have something that has a, uh, less intense belly from your running line up into your belly is not uh, the worst thing in the world, assuming that, uh, it is, is properly matched with your rod. That's one of those things where you can get in trouble and, and it's going to make your rod feel like it's underpowered. Uh, if, if you get a line that is too thin, um, but those, these days, more often than not, you're, they're going to pair very well. The other line style, and I'm not going to give a bunch of brand names and their particular labels for these kinds of lines are going to be some of like the technical 
uh, labeled uh, lines. They, you know, they they have all sorts of silly, super intense uh, names. But what they're meant is for is for long casting. Now, these are kind of a blessing and a curse. And for fishing dry flies, I don't want to be making a bunch of casts 60, 70, 80 feet out, uh, particularly for the reason that it is not a very easy hook set. It's not an easy hook set on a fly that you are retrieving at 75 feet uh, for a trout. I mean, if it's a big predatory fish and takes your fly, then that's a totally different situation. But Making a uh, set, a hook set, on a trout that's rising to a dry fly at 70 feet, it's, I mean, it's doable. I've done it before. It's just not an ideal situation. So these lines that are meant for very long casting, uh, they're only going to make your long casts better if you're already a good caster. So I would put those at kind of like the second tier and only if it really fits your casting stroke. So those would be the three lines I would recommend. One would be the normal trout taper. Uh, secondly, would be some sort of finesse taper. And thirdly, it would be like a technical or long distance taper, depending on your casting stroke. And again, Every manufacturer is going to have different specs. There's going to be overlap, but these are three things to look for in the labels and the descriptions of your fly lines. The third thing that you need has nothing to do with spending money, has everything to do with practice. To be a good dry fly fisher, you need to be able to cast accurately at distance. I was saying a minute ago, 60, 70, 80 feet. That's not necessary, but 60 feet, 50 feet, 40 feet, that's the, where the money is. Um, that's where you want to be able to drop your fly in a hula hoop or smaller um, uh, target. You may say, well, that's, you know, first of all, that's that's unnecessary. Okay. In my humble opinion, that is attainable by most of us if we put the time into practice. And if we can't attain that on our own, then that's where maybe a little bit of time, energy, and effort, and maybe even money to get a professional casting instructor to give you some tips can really help. I didn't think I needed any help with my casting, particularly my casting at distance when I was in my late 20s and I was fly fishing all the time and I was teaching casting. And then I had a professional casting instructor uh, observe and made me do just one or two little things and it increased the efficiency of my casting stroke uh, exponentially. Um, I had to do a whole lot less and I achieved a lot more. And again, I didn't go from being the best fly caster to a world class, but I went from being a pretty good caster at distance to a even better one. And that came with just a few tips from a professional. And part of that is you can't see yourself cast. And unless you want to invest in the, the equipment to do that, uh, it's great to have somebody who can diagnose what's wrong because there are so many variables in a fly cast. And that can be one of the most, most helpful things. But regardless if you get somebody to help you or not, practice, practice, practice. Being good at casting the gear you have is going to make you a better angler and it's going to make your gear work better for you. Or it's going to deter, you know, make you determine that I need to make a change in my line or my rod. All right. So rod line practice. Fourth thing, also nothing that involves money. It's mending. Know how to mend, know when to mend, know how to read the, your fly line as it's moving across the water. Make sure your fly line is clean, that it is not nicked up. Maybe even that you've applied some sort of very light fly line treatment to it. So your fly line is floating. That's going to accomplish two things as you're making dry fly presentations. First of all, it's not going to sink your fly. Your fly is going to already be struggling against maintaining buoyancy in the first place. You don't want the terminal and the tip of your fly line to sink and pull that fly line fly down anymore. 
Secondly, and more pertinent to the idea of mending, you're going to be able to watch that line as it moves across the water and figure out if it's going to be pulling your fly into a situation where it is not having the dead drift that you want, or it's not going to remain in the feeding lane that you've intended your presentation to stay in. If you watch that fly line and you know how to mend, and all mending is, this is not super easy or fun to necessarily describe on a podcast, but using the tip of your fly rod, you are going to be moving that fly line so that it is not moving at a speed in the current, or it is not moving in a current at a speed that is going to adversely affect the downstream presentation of your dry fly. It's not going to pull it either faster downstream than the speed of the current, and it's also not going to pull it across or in an unnatural manner. Now, will fish bite flies that are doing those things? Absolutely. They're just fish. But that's not the ideal or the optimal thing that you're going to try to replicate. So pay attention to your fly line. Learn how to mend. Learn ways to mend that doesn't jerk your fly a few inches. Learn ways to mend that makes it so that you are doing less mends for any given drift. Obviously, there's going to be some sort of drifts and currents that you're going to be constantly fighting against. But then also, and this is kind of a corollary thing to practice casting and also practice mending, learn how to cast in such a way that the the least amount of fly line is on the water and that you're putting your fly line as far upstream as you possibly can uh, so that you are not having to deal with mending as much. So there's a whole lot more that could be said about mending. That's a whole podcast unto itself. But again, I'm not sure describing mending for 20 minutes is necessarily riveting listening. All right, your rod, your line, practice, mending. Next thing, leaders. Again, leaders are a great way to immediately improve the presentation of your fly and ultimately put you onto more fish. So uh, as I've said before, I have no problem with starting with knotless tapered leaders. So these are the fluorocarbon or monofilament leaders that have a thick usually looped butt section on the end and they're very, very thick and they go, you know, like 30 pound test or something like that. And they go down in a gradual taper down to your 6X. So what I think is a great thing to do with a knotless tapered leader for dry fly fishing. And I have an article that touches on this um, because ultimately, you know, your best uh, leaders are going to be specifically formulated to the type of fish you're fishing you're doing. Um, and that is kind of a, you know, 201 thing to think about when it comes to uh, leader formulation. But if you take a knotless tapered leader and you find where that, let's just say 6X is what you're fishing. Um, you know, you're fishing a either wary fish or you're fishing a small, like a, you know, like a 16 uh, dry fly. And so you need a 6X. And let me take a step back before I get to the leader formulation. Why do you need to have fine tapered leaders? Uh, one has to do with you want it to, um, to not be the thing that moves first. You want your fly to be the thing that moves first. You want your fly to be the thing that is influenced by the current, not your gossamer strand or your overly thick uh, leader. So you want it to to accomplish that. But then also you want it to fit through the eye of your fly. 
which is obviously a very, very helpful thing. I don't know how many times I've seen people like, I can't get this dumb thing in there. My, you know, I can't see this fly stinking fly tire, put too much head cement in there. They're trying to shove like three X into a, uh, a size, uh, 18 dry fly anyway. Um, so that's why you want that, that light leader material, but you also fish with as heavy as you can get away with too. There's no virtue in saying, Oh, I'm fishing eight X. You know, if you can fish five X, go, go for it. If it's water, that's not super fine. Fish that in super wary and you can get it through the eye of your hook and it's not going to be wicked stiff so that it is making your fly move in the current as your tippet kind of undulates along with the water. All right. So going back to that nine foot knotless tapered leader, you say it's a six X, get your six X tippet in one hand, a little spool and your knotless tapered leader and find where that, um, that uh, knotless tapered leader where it kind of is beginning to make that transition from the thickness of 5x to 6x. There's not going to be one perfect location because it's going to be gradual. And then I snip that off. So now I have probably something, if it was a nine foot leader, probably have like a seven foot leader. And now I add another full arm you know, uh, span. Uh, so for me, my wingspan is, isn't your wingspan supposed to be as tall as you are? So, I mean, it's whatever, five, you know, five, eight on a good day, but you know, about five feet, um, five between five and six feet. Uh, so I'm, I'm not five feet tall. Okay. I'm certainly not six feet tall either. Um, so now you have something like a 13 or 14 or 15 foot leader, and that is not too long for a good dry fly presentation. Ideally, you're going to have some Thing that is going to be between 10 and 13 feet. Um, if you are making long casts, and not super long casts, but you know, even 25, 30 feet, having a little bit more tippet material is incredibly helpful. There's so many leader for, uh, formulas, but I just, I guess my, my ultimate encouragement with this is not a perfect, uh, length. I know I've made a couple of statements about that, but it's a little, having a leader that's a little bit longer than you think, and it has a longer length of tippet than you would normally use a normal knotless tapered leader. I like to have at least four feet of like six X, if I'm fishing a six X, uh, tippet, um, I don't want to just put two feet on there. I'm also not comfortable in just tying it on the end of a brand new knotless tapered leader. I want at least four feet. So six feet might be overkill, but four feet is what we're talking about. And then also make sure that you have the, the tippet material length, uh, or excuse me, width diameter that is going to fish well and also fit through the eye of the hook. So rod line, practice mending leaders and floatants have a variety of floatants. And if you're only going to have two, the two is going to be a regular liquid floatant. Now I will give some product recommendations. I like loon stuff. So they're Aquel, they're normal, um, liquid floatant is great stuff. And then they're, I can't think of what it's called, but they're, they're fly shake. You put it, uh, it, it's the, the, to dry off your flies. So the liquid goes on first while the fly is dry and it's keep it riding high and then the uh, the fly shake is going to be what you put it in, and it's has, it's a desiccant and also a treatment uh, to keep it flying. It's going to come out looking like a cotton ball, so you blow on it. Uh, their stuff is great because it doesn't leave an oil slick. Um, it's all you know, natural stuff, so it's not going to leave a greasy fly. But having both of those things on hand, not one, not the other, but both of them is so important to maintaining a good floating fly. And also, don't hesitate to clip off one fly and tie in the exact same fly um, while that first one dries off. Uh, sometimes making those fly switches from uh, one version of one pattern to the, the same pattern, just a different fly, um, is a lot faster than hassling with 
pulling that fly in, blowing on it, smushing it in your sleeve, maybe smashing it in those mushroom patches, and then drying the thing off. Sometimes if you're doing that too many times in a row, just snip it off and put on a new one. Don't hesitate to do that. And then the last thing, last recommendation, flies. But I mean, you know, you got to find the flies that work for you. But what I would say is get some nice general flies because one of the joys of fly fishing, in my humble opinion, is catching uh, trout uh, on dry flies when there's not a hatch going on. So this is most easily accomplished when there's terrestrial activity. So fishing, you know, ants and beetles and hoppers and junk like that. And that's a lot of fun. But getting fish to rise to a very well-presented mayfly imitation when there's not a ton of mayfly activity, or maybe even skating a caddis, totally different conversation than we've had today, um, and getting a fish to strike when there's not a bunch of caddis buzzing around, that is one of the best and most fun things. It's challenging, but it's one of the best things about fly fishing, in my humble opinion. So that is a very quick primer on what I would say the top seven things that you need to really take your dry fly fishing seriously. Again, a lot of this is going to be catered to you. A lot of this is going to be catered to where you fish. But uh, take what I what I have offered up today and use it how you wish. And uh, see if you have everything you need. See if maybe you need to make a small investment to uh, to take your dry fly fishing to the next level. This week on castingacross.com, Monday's article is called Gun Hunting, Last Day. Gone hunting last day. This is like seven pictures, only a couple of sentences. But uh, Monday was the duck closer where I live here in Massachusetts. And so I had to go out, even though the weather was terrible and there was only one bird, only one shell got used between the three of us. And that wood duck is still flying somewhere. Uh, but still, it was good to get out and some pretty pictures of a chilly uh, January day. Wednesday's article, generating a little bit of interest and conversation, is called Fishing Idaho Gold in Rainbows. Fishing Idaho, gold in rainbows. Uh, Idaho, the state, on the South Fork Snake River has instituted a bounty on the rainbow trout. It's because rainbow trout occupy the same ecological niche as the Yellowstone cutthroat, and they want to preserve the native Yellowstone cutthroat and allow their populations to thrive. And the only way they see to do that is to take out the non-native rainbow trout. And so to add anglers to the roster of uh, folks pulling fish out of here, uh, not just the biologists that want anglers doing it, they have implanted, I believe they're like RFID chips. They're little chips. They punch them into the snout of the fish, and then you cut the head off the fish, and then you put it in a cooler, and then you could potentially win $1,000. There's a lot more to it than that, both from a biological standpoint and also from a uh, program standpoint. But to get all the information, go over to castingacross.com and check out Fishing Idaho Gold in Rainbows. Okay, this week's recommendation on the podcast. I actually stopped the podcast, went over to loonoutdoors.com and looked at their collection of floatants. Because I have all four of these in my drawer, I usually only use one but I, I have used all of them. Uh, so Loon has an assortment of four float powders or little float, float shakes, uh, as it were, because you got to shake them to apply them. Uh, the one is called the Top Ride. This is the best seller, the one that I use the most. And what it is, it is they're drying pellets, like I said, as well as a dust. So the pellets dry, the dust adds a floatant to the fly. Now, there are the two products that go into Top Ride are called Easy Dry and Loon Dust. So you can buy a jar of just the drying pellets, and you can buy a jar of just the drying dust. And there would be particular reasons that I'm not going to go into right now why you do use one or the other, but they're great things. 
great products. There's one more product they sell called Blue Ribbon, and this one's great. And I've used this for tiny little dry flies, and I've used this uh, when I've fished uh, um, CDC and on spring creeks. Um, very uh, fine powder, uh, so it's not going to cake up in the same way that uh, that uh, a normal fly floating powder would. And so that is called the Blue Ribbon. Every one of these products is under 10 bucks. It's going to last you at least a season. Uh, but I will put a link to the collection of Loon Outdoor Floatant uh, Powders on uh, the show notes for this page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.